You may be seated. Just a couple brief words before we pray and kind of jump into the passage. Um, The first is I just realized looking around that we're missing a lot of people. (laughs) I I think Scott's the only one in this whole section. So, (laughs) Um, oh, Steve as well. We got two there. That's good. Um, So I just want to say to those of you that are at home, and I've, I've spoken with many of you this last week who are sick with COVID, and um, I know that can be a a lonely place being isolated for that period of time. Um, I want to say that we acknowledge what you're going through. We miss you, and in just a moment, I want to pray for you as we kind of begin in our sermon together, and if there's any way you need support, even like you just want to talk to somebody, want to pray with somebody, (laughs) uh, just let us know. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, speaking of prayer, one of the things that we're doing as we enter into 2020 is uh, working with um, CAP, who is um, a priest at Holy Trinity who oversees our prayer ministry. Um, She uh, has been kind of saying, hey, how about at the beginning of 2020, we spend um, January kind of doing four weeks of just communicating about how their, uh, what the prayer opportunities are. And so um, what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks is just kind of sharing little testimonials of those who are involved in the prayer team in some way, shape, or form to kind of give you glimpses of what's happening in in it, and then making you aware of the opportunities. So you'll see in your announcement sheet at the bottom of the page, the first page, there's a a few different ways that you can be involved in um, the prayer ministry at Holy Trinity, varying levels of involvement. And... um, it really struck me, uh, I think it was maybe two months ago, how much of a gift this actually is. Because I haven't been serving on the intercessory prayer team during um, the services normally because I'm doing other things. But I think it was about two months ago when I was doing a blessing for the children and I invited the prayer ministers forward. There was a little bit of a mistake and no prayer ministers came forward. <laughs> so I, I had the children anoint me for that work, and I went over and got to do an intercessory prayer, and I had about three or four people that came up to me, and I got to pray with them after the service, and I remember going home that day, and I said, that was one of the best services I've been to in a long time, and I realized it's just because of the joy uh, and honor of people saying, hey, let me share a real need with you, and there's something vulnerable in that, right? They kind of, they're entrusting a piece of their lives to you, and saying, and would you, would you come alongside me and intercede before God? And there was something so simple about it, but I just came and said, oh, man, that is the stuff right there. That's so good. Um, so, yeah, I just want to point you in that direction, that in 2022, we're hoping that the Lord would develop in us a spirit of prayer, um, just simply to enjoy God for who he is, but also to uphold one another to God as his children. So on that note, let's pray. And then we'll kind of jump into uh, the baptism of our Lord here. Father, thank you for our brothers and sisters that are gathered here and those that are scattered in many places, Lord. We thank you that your spirit unites us all into one mystical body, into one church. So we pray that you would speak to us here and now. You would speak to our brothers and sisters across Orange County. And that you would minister words of consolation and grace and peace and truth. And remind us all of who we are in you. So we ask these things through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
So at the beginning of Advent, we heard about this John the Baptist figure, didn't we? It was uh, Zechariah who was in the temple burning incense, making intercessions on behalf of the people of Israel. And an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. You are going to be the father of the one who is going to prepare the way for the Lord, for the Messiah, for the Savior, for the Christ. And now at the beginning of Epiphany, as we celebrate the beginning or the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, we come into contact with this son of Zechariah again. John the Baptist has gone into the wilderness. He's crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. And he's telling people that in order to prepare, they should repent. They should turn around. They should realign their lives and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And there is a note of fervor in the air in these opening chapters. People have begun to wonder, we see, is John the Christ? Is he the one we've been waiting for? I mean, he's a fiery figure. He's very bold. He's got a vast vision for the future. This grassroots movement is swelling. He's getting a following. Is he the one that we've been waiting for? And so a number of people start coming to him. Tax collectors, soldiers, people from every area and walk of life coming to him and questioning him, uh, asking what his preaching, what this movement means for their lives and their profession in particular. We're told in verse 15 that people were in expectation. Something new was happening. All we are told, even if they weren't questioning verbally, they were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. The signs of his ministry were impressive indeed. And if there's anything we've learned throughout human history, it's that people like impressive gifts. They like people with charisma. They like people with bold and fiery words and those that have a daring and clear vision for the future. And so John begins answering them. He's like, I've got to make a clear distinction here for you guys. I baptize you with water, verse 16, but he who is coming is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, it is he that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, I am just pointing to the real thing. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, if any of you have been Christians or read the scriptures for any amount of time, you're probably familiar with this phrase, and that's why it just kind of glides over our hearts and minds like water off a duck's back. But note what he's saying here. In the ancient world, to untie someone's sandals was the work of a servant. A guest would come into a house, and a common act of hospitality is that the host would offer that guest a basin of water and a towel so that they could wash their feet as they enter into the home. Now, if that person was wealthy enough, the host maybe had a servant, then it would be the job of the servant to wash the feet of that particular guest. So they would have to get down. First thing they would do is untie the strap of the sandal, take off the sandal, and then wash. So the untying of sandals was indicative of service, of a clear social order and hierarchy of who serves whom. And in the ancient world, there was this sense that it, no one is greater, no one is grander, and no one is more godlike than Caesar Augustus. If you're to think of the social hierarchy and order, it starts from the bottom and it works its way up, and you kind of have Caesar Augustus. 
Uh, there are ancient accounts that Caesar Augustus was even called son of God, or he was called Lord Curios. So in the New Testament, when you get these words, son of God and Lord, applied, applied to Jesus, you are hearing a direct challenge of the supremacy of Roman power and authority. The New Testament is saying there is only one Lord. There is only one king. But even the Roman emperor himself, in all of his grandeur and dignity and divinity, even he allowed servants and slaves to untie the, his sandals, the straps of his sandals, and wash his feet. And here John is saying, there is one who is coming who is so great that we are not even worthy to offer him this act of service, to touch his sandals. In other words, John is think, saying, think of the most magnificent and mighty and holy person you could imagine, and this one is going to be greater than he. This one is going to be mightier than he. This one is going to have more power and authority to change the world and transform your life than he. And when he comes, he's not going to ask you to untie his sandal. He is rather going to give you something. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so Luke tells us in verse 18 that with many other exhortations, John was preaching this good news to the people. And then Luke recounts the baptism of the Lord. I don't know what comes into your hearts and minds when you think about baptism. Maybe you can remember your baptism if you've been baptized before. Um, if you haven't been, that's okay. Just come talk to me. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. It'd be great. Maybe some of you were baptized so young that you can't remember it, but you've seen others baptized, so you can imagine that happening to yourself. See, in, in Mark's gospel, he talks about the event of Jesus' baptism, Jesus going through the waters of the Jordan. He focuses on the event itself. Matthew, when he talks about Jesus' baptism, he asks the question, why does Jesus want to be baptized? And then Jesus specifies to fulfill all righteousness. But Luke doesn't focus on the event itself or why Jesus is being baptized. He focuses on what happens after Jesus' baptism as Jesus is praying. Having emerged from the water, Jesus is praying. He's communing with his Father. He's allowing what has just happened to him with the, the, the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove to soak and descend into his heart and his mind and his soul. Maybe he's giving thanks to God, that he belongs to God and he belongs to no other. Maybe he's giving thanks that God has laid on him finally the mantle of messiahship, that God has anointed him to be the savior of the world, that God has declared him to be Lord over all. And it's in that moment of praying, we're told, that the heavens are open and the Holy Spirit descends on him. And then there's a voice from these opened heavens that declares, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And it's this theme of sonship that then becomes like the golden thread that stitches together the, the paragraphs and chapters to come in the story of Jesus. And so you notice right after those words from heaven, Luke goes into a genealogy describing Jesus' life. It, it seems like a weird thing, doesn't it? <laughs> Jesus is the son of Joseph, who is the son of so-and-so, who is the son of so-and-so, like 60 times until, until it gets to the son of Adam, who was the original, in a human sense, son of God. 
And then from the genealogy, it goes to the temptation. Jesus is led out into the wilderness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the wilderness, he is tempted by Satan three times. And in the first and third temptations, Satan goes after Jesus' identity as the Son. He says in the first one, if you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. In other words, you don't have to depend on God's provision for your life. Use your power to do it yourself. The third temptation, if you are the Son of God, there it is again, throw yourself down from here and surely God will send a whole legion of angels to rescue you. In other words, if, if you really are the Son of God, then use your identity as some sort of leverage to get God to do what you want, when you want, and how you want, instead of trusting his timing and providence. And so it's this theme of sonship that in the early chapters of Luke, right on the heels of Jesus' baptism, that is front and central for who Jesus is, and I think also for who we are. Because if we were to summarize the whole New Testament in a word, I think it was J.I. Packer who said it would be adoption. Adoption as beloved sons and daughters of God in Christ. So I want to explore this theme of sonship just briefly with you, Jesus' own sonship, and then ours. Notice how in all the Gospels, it is Jesus' baptism that stands at the beginning of his public ministry. It's at the beginning he is, he is honored as the beloved. In other words, we're being told that Jesus' baptism is not an affirmation that he has earned God's love. But it tells us that he was fully and completely and always and already loved by God before he did or healed anybody. Nothing he did was about earning his father's love. And everything he did was because he had already fully experienced it. And so as we go through the Gospels and as we read them, I, I couldn't sleep last night. So I was up in the middle of the night just reading the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> and, just, and just marveling at this fact that every word he speaks and every person he interacts with and every decision he makes, every time he says yes, every time he says no, every time he forgives and heals, every time he has a convicting and challenging word, which he has lots of those, <laughs> and every time he speaks a, a consoling and comforting word, Every time he weeps and every time he bleeds, every time he tucks away from the crowds to pray, and everything he, every time he enters back into the crowds to preach, all that he is doing there, none of that is about seeking the love and affirmation of his Father. All of that is an expression of the fact that he already knows who he is as one who is loved and affirmed by the Father from all eternity. And so what that tells us is that there is a freedom and a goodness and a love to Jesus' life that is not dependent on the things he does or on the things he owns or even on the people he saves. I think it's a bit of an image of the gospel of justification by grace alone. There is a German reformer um, in the 16th century named Martin Luther who was asked for pastoral advice at one time. Um, as a pastor, and, and people were in a season of turmoil and trouble. All of society was going crazy. <laughs> I 
I mean, there were wars everywhere, and, and people were disagreeing and tearing people apart, and the printing press had been invented just a generation before, so now people could, like, you think social media is bad? Well, they experienced the print and printing press as, like, social media of their day, you know, just, like, crushing each other from afar. You can say things you can't say to people's face and stuff like that. And people were experiencing a lot of doubt and despair in that season. And, and so people were coming to him and said, you know, can you give us some pastoral advice? And Martin Luther had these curious words. He just said, remember your baptism. In other words, remember in the midst of it all who God has declared you to be. So my brothers and sisters, do you find yourself in the wilderness? <laughs> in this season, thirsting for something that you're having a tough time finding. Remember your baptism. You are his beloved. Are you finding yourself overcome with temptation, maybe like Jesus when he was led in the wilderness, and, but you're having a difficult time denying that temptation? Remember your baptism. Do you find yourself weighed down by the sheer brokenness and neediness of the world? And the sense that you're aware of how limited and feeble your attempts are to make a difference in it. Remember your baptism. Do you find yourself exhausted, withering, maybe under the weight of ministry or responsibility or, if you're like me, just decision fatigue? <laughs> Remember your baptism. Or do you find yourself wondering who you really are in this season? And sometimes that happens to us when, when all our comforts are stripped away or um, when um, all goes wrong in life. It's often in those times that we find ourselves asking, who am I really? Remember your baptism. You, says God in Christ, are my beloved son and daughter. With you, even you, I am well pleased. In the chosen, which you've heard me refer to lots of times and will continue to in the months ahead, there's this wonderful episode. It's the story of Mary Magdalene relapsing from her kind of alcoholic background. Something traumatic happens to her that reminds her of a season of abuse in her life. It triggers that trauma, and the only thing she can think of doing in that moment is let's go back to drowning that in alcohol, which was an old way of dealing with that pain before she met Jesus. And Jesus sends um, Peter and Matthew to go find her in the city, go search for her, and eventually they find her, and they bring her back to the camp where Jesus and the disciples are, but she's afraid to face Jesus again. She does not want to see him. She is scared and full of shame. I cannot be in his presence. And it's Mary, the mother of Jesus, that comes alongside Mary Magdalene and says, no, let me bring you into his presence. And she brings him into the tent of Jesus. And as she's facing Jesus, she goes into the tent and she can't look up at him. And the first thing Jesus says is, Mary, look at me. Mary, look at me. I can't. How could you ever forgive me, she says. And Jesus says, well, if, if you could lose my love in one day, it wouldn't be much of a redemption, would it? I wonder how many people in this season of COVID have kick-started or restarted addictions and sins in the midst of the trauma of all they've experienced. And for some of us, maybe it's been a day, and for others, a week. 
maybe for some a month or a year or a whole lifetime, and you're wondering, could you ever forgive me, Lord? In Ephesians 1, Paul speaks good news to a whole community of people who are struggling. People who are struggling to get along, to walk in holiness, to live in love. And he writes to them to remind them of God's love for them. He says in verse 1, verse 5 of chapter 1, In love, God predestined us for adoption as beloved sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, with which he blessed us, and then here it is, in the beloved. It's that language from Jesus' baptism. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. So I think what Paul is doing to encourage this group of Christians who live in and around Ephesus is he is viewing Jesus' baptism through the lens of Jesus' cross. He sees that Jesus lived the life we could not live, and he he died the death that we deserve, and he's opened this way of adoption into God's holy family. And when we are adopted into God's holy family, Jesus is making possible for us to experience a love that we have never experienced before. Jesus' own belovedness in relation to the Father now becomes our very own in relation to the Father. He pours out his Holy Spirit upon us, baptizes us with the Spirit and with fire so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, just as Jesus always has. And so, my brothers and sisters, Jesus' baptism stands at the beginning of his public ministry before he can do any, before he does anything, before he heals anyone, before he speaks a single parable or word, before he dies and rises again, and the Father says, this one is the one on whom my pleasure rests. And I wonder if at the beginning of a new year, That is a word that you need to hear afresh in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, 2021, um, Israel said to us a number of months ago, was not what we thought it would be. (laughs) And, And maybe 2022 won't be either. Maybe there will be things at the end of the year that you are really proud that you did and you said and you contributed to and you were a part of. And maybe I can guarantee at the end of the year there will be things that you really wish didn't happen and you really wish you weren't a part of. But at the beginning of the year, what God is asking us to do is, I think, to release all of that to him. And just to realize that in Christ, the heavens have opened. The Spirit has descended upon us, has filled us with the life of Jesus. And in the name of Christ, we hear those words as our own. You, too, are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.